Well, good morning again. If you're visiting, thank you so much uh, for joining us, this crazy group of people with all sorts of energy. Uh, I'll just say it again. He who is forgiven much loves much. So that's why, at least for me, my wild and crazy energy is because, you know, I've been forgiven a lot. I got a lot of energy, got a lot of love to express. So thank you for being here with us. Again, our connections cards is just the best way that we can communicate with you. And we want to do the best we can to help make this church your church. And so please be filling those out if that's you. Uh, We're going to jump right into it. Our All and Nothing series, our fifth week right now. All and Nothing. Jesus paid it all. And so the, uh, the amount left on my debt settlement statement, math people, it's nothing. So all and nothing. Now we're in chapter two of Colossians today. And I want to start by asking you have, you, have you heard the headline news this week, this last week about Monopoly, of course, Hansbro, the, the maker of Monopoly 80 years ago has, uh, if this is the first time you're hearing it, brace yourself, but they're axing the thimble. And the wheelbarrow. Uh, That has nothing to do with what I'm about to ask you. My my question is this. Have you ever seen counterfeit Monopoly money? Counterfeit Monopoly money. Now, maybe you've seen money that's kind of like Monopoly money, but maybe not money that's actually trying to deceive you into being Monopoly money. And I'm going to guess that no. You haven't seen counterfeit Monopoly money because... You only, you only counterfeit things that have abiding value. Jesus has infinitely abiding value. And so if you're a disciple of Jesus, the effort to guard against counterfeits and the plausible arguments of our culture about who Jesus is, is an essential part of you growing. It's a, it's a part of your struggle if you know Jesus. The plausible arguments and the counterfeits. Now today we're going to see in chapter 2, Paul is drawing the stark contrast between the faith in Jesus, which is this strange mix of, between the uh, a surety and what we know about him and who we are in him, and a mystery of what, what we don't know and yet we, what we trust God for. Over and against... The, what he calls hollow philosophies and, and plausible arguments. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet to honor God's word. We're going to read 12 verses of chapter 2 of Colossians together. So I'll, I'll read it. You, you listen. It's a lot of words. Paul says, For I want you to know how great a struggle that I have for you and for those who are in Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this, verse 4, in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in the body, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing in your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up 
in him and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding with thanksgiving. See to it, verse 8, that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him, who is the head of, in the rule of, in all authority. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, which you were also raised with him through the faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Thank you, God's word. Y'all can be seated as we pray. Lord, please add a blessing to the reading of your word and to the people who stood for 12 verses of it, honoring your word. And Lord, I'm asking that we would get rich today in your word. Of all the things that we could be rich in, to be rich in knowing you with an eternal richness, God. Having a firmness and assurance in the mysterious treasure of who you are, Jesus. Do that through me and even way beyond my words, God. Have your way in us today. Amen. Raniero Cantalamessa, sorry if I butched the brother's name, but this guy has been serving since 1980 as a minister in the Popple household. That means he's been preaching to popes for almost four decades. Uh, that makes him a Catholic OG, original gangster. <laughs> it's still a thing, right? Guy's been in it preaching to high-level people. He's also a a very amazing historian and philosopher. And he points this out about medieval tales. He says, quote, in the tales of medieval battles, there always comes a moment when the orderly ranks of archers and cavalry and all the rest of the broken, all the rest are broken and the fighting concentrates around the king. He says that is where the final outcome of the battle will be decided. And for us too, He says, the battle today is taking place around the king. It is around the person of Jesus Christ himself. That's the real point of issue, he says. The battle is the same as the battle in the first century. Is Jesus the universal savior? Is he the universal savior? That's the question that Paul asks up and against all the other ideas that are dangerous, is Jesus really the universal savior? Now, the the thing about plausible arguments and the the ability for any of us to be deceived is is the thing that's that's really, uh, we think, is going to save us can be really easy to deceive us. That's That's the whole point of deception. You don't know when you're being deceived. That's why it's deception. That's why Paul says, do not be deluded by plausible arguments. And he says all these things about who Jesus is. And so Cantalamessa says this about our culture, that this is where we are today in our argument. I've noticed this. Over 12 years of campus ministry, the arguments don't seem to be as much about astrophysical things and biological things and, and arguing about evolution as much as it's hey, I saw Da Vinci Code and 
who is Jesus really? It's the question of Jesus. It's about, is he the universal savior? Is he the king? Is, is it right to have your faith in this person? Is that restrictive? That's the question I'm hearing. Now, I've been defending with arguments for years, probably about two decades now since I've been a Christian, arguments, intellectual arguments perhaps, about who Jesus is and, and how God has created the universe one of my mentors about four or five years ago, his name's Rice Brooks, he wrote a book called God's Not Dead, and he collaborated with the, the movie of the same name. And he was answering questions about, uh, about who, how God created humanity and answering questions about all the, the cosmo, cosmological arguments and things like that. He realized about two years ago that the, the point of issue, he agreed with Cantalamessa that the things in our culture today that are being asked are about who Jesus is. And so he wrote this book, uh, and this was part of God's Not Dead too. Uh, this book, Man, Myth, and Messiah, where he wrestles with a lot of different plausible arguments about who Jesus is. And the reason that's important for you and why I reference it, and I have a little picture and challenge you to read it, is because there are a lot of plausible arguments, and it's not just an intellectual battle. Depending on who Jesus really is, then in precision to gather the mystery of who he is and that treasure is a battle for your life and your soul and your marriage and everything that you have in life. Paul is extremely pointed about us really gathering the real treasure and having our faith not be in empty things but in who Christ really is. And this is huge for us. As I was actually wrestling with this this week, I, I thought of a different way to go about communicating some things to you. Now, before I get to this, I want to ask you, can you please dig in with me here? You might be here and you might be thinking like, all right, well, this is a lot of kind of out there stuff, but really what I'm weighed down with right now is, is financial things or it's career questions or it's my, my kids or my marriage or, or other more real things. But I'm going to ask you, please stay with me because there is something more real than the things that may, might be right in your face. And if Jesus is who Paul believed him to be and he is, then really capturing who he is will override all our worries and the things that we think are our real problems. The point of issue, whether we even know it or not, and especially if, we, if we're not aware of it, the point of issue is the king and the kingship of Jesus in your life, in your finances, in your marriage, in your career. It's, is he king? Are you knowing him there and making him known from there? So I'm asking you to not check it out, but to, to dig in with me because your heart is at stake. Your life is at stake. The lives of others will be blessed through you capturing and digging into this. And how I want to go about this is a little different than normal. Instead of having uh, a bunch of points that I want to communicate to you, I actually did this exercise in going through the verses we just read this week that I found extremely helpful to me and very applicable for you. So if you didn't know that you were coming to church to exercise today, you are. <laughs> I don't know, it doesn't even matter what shoes you have on. I want to help you do the same sermon preparation exercise as we unpack these verses. So 
I actually provided you a little, a little card, and if you have a pen, it's in our seat backs. If you, don't, if you don't have a pen, there's in our seat backs. If you don't, you can follow along with us, and you can remember what we're doing. I want to, to, to point out, we have a line down the middle and a line up top. On the left side, we have truth. On the right side, we have counterfeit. Here's why I am endeavoring to do this right now in church, y'all. I'm taking the risk to do something very different. Because more than just telling you the things that I'm thinking, I want to I help you to think about thinking yourself. To weigh out truth versus lie when you read the scripture. To weigh out what you can know and what you don't know and what the other plausible arguments are in life. I'm going to tell you right now, this little exercise we're doing is extremely beneficial for life. How many of y'all in the last few months have had a big decision in life that you've had to think about? A lot of us, right? How often is those, those things, those ideas, the what to do, what not to do, just get swirled around in your head and you get so overwhelmed with those things, right? I, I promise you, this is one of the most amazing things that someone helped me with. If you would write down those thoughts, it's disarming the worry that comes in your head. You write them down. You write down on the left side of your piece of paper. What, what do I know about what God has spoken to me in life? And, and, and what do I know about how he's leading me in life? And what are the things that I don't know? You know, the name of my spouse that God's already told me that they're going to be like, right? Or, or he told me what to do with my life and my career, but the person, the, the company or corporation or whatever, on the top left portion of the paycheck, I don't know them yet. What you'll find is what you can know through how God leads you versus what you don't yet know is so much more. And therefore, if you do this exercise with weighing out Colossians 2 or weighing out how God's leading in your life, it can be extremely beneficial. So here we go. I want to just go through the verses we just read and, and, and point out what do we know about the mystery of the treasure of Christ and, and what are the things in our culture perhaps or what are the things that Paul points out to beware of, okay? So here we go. Number one, he says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. So I'm gonna stop there and just write up there, write down struggle. Verse one, I love, I love this, that if you are a disciple of Jesus, there's a struggle involved. If you're a disciple and, and you're like Paul, or you're trying to be like Paul, there's a struggle in fact, if there's not a struggle in your life for truth, I would be concerned. Because what if the enemy just wants to give you a struggle because you have that treasure? And if there is no struggle, maybe you're missing the treasure. There is a struggle to knowing God and making him known and making disciples. Your life is supposed to be a glorious struggle of knowing the mystery of Jesus, of, of enjoying the treasure and, and being generous, generous enough to give it away to your children and a few other people and then you die. And that is a beautiful, unwasted life. And if you're not a part of that struggle, you have a greater struggle. The wrong kind of struggle. So there's a struggle in walking out the truth. Verse two, I love these words. There's the word encouraged. There's the knit together. There's, there's riches. There's full assurance of understanding in the mystery of Christ. I love how there's, there's so many things that we can know and they're sure and rock solid and yet there's some things that we don't know that we aspire to. They're still mysterious. 
That's the beauty of faith in Jesus. Verse three, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. How often is the battle of our life just a a lazy endeavor to just accept lesser treasures than all the treasures that Jesus provides for us? And then we see, go a little bit down, verses six and seven, there's the challenge. So if you've received him, past tense, then walk in him. If you've received him, walk in him. Uh, there's, a, there's verse five and then six and seven, there's this, there's this walking that, that involves this firmness. There's firmness of faith in Christ. There's walking in him, rooted, built it up, built up, established, uh, abounding in thanks. It's a beautiful life that we have in truth. Verse eight talks about faith according to Christ. Here's what's beautiful about this. Your faith doesn't have to be according to your mind, your understanding, your desires, your performance. Your faith isn't according to your faith. How about, have you ever been in a place where it's like, man, I believe God, but do I believe God? And you think that you're placing your faith in your faith? Like, what if God knows that I don't quite have the faith for that? Or, oh no, well, here's what's great. The good news is you don't have to have faith in your faith. Your faith is according to, to something much greater than you. Your faith is according to Christ, not to elemental things, not to plausible arguments, not to your ability to understand things all up in your own mind. Your faith is to be according to Christ. Verse nine, the fullness of the deity dwells bodily in Jesus. He's not a mythical person. He's not a myth. He's a very real person who very really walked on this earth and lived the life that you and I should have lived and died the death that we should have died and was risen again on the third day. 500 eyewitnesses bore testimony to this and most of them were persecuted as a result and never recanted their story. He is seated right now at the right hand of God. He'll come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and this kingdom will have no end. That's a very real person. The fullness of God dwells bodily in that guy. The mystery and the firmness and the assurance of this adventure called knowing the truth in Christ is a beautiful thing that we can have and possess and yet grow in the mystery of. It's this beautiful thing. Man, this left side is getting filled up, y'all. And then 12, verses 10 through 12, talks about how all that mystery has been applied to you. You've been filled, you've been circumcised, you've been buried. That person that used to not just doubt, but give in to doubts, and the doubts controlled you, that person's dead and buried. You have been raised to new life, to overcome the doubts, to weigh these things out, to, to exercise the truth, and to override the plausible arguments that'll come your way. Things that I don't have time to mention in the sermon. If anything, I can help you to exercise truth in what you know about God, what you know about what he's done in your life versus the struggles of the, the lies the enemy would try to bring you on the right side of this. Let, let's get to the counterfeit side. It says, verse four, do not be deluded by plausible arguments. This word deluded, 
that he uses. It, it means deceived or beguiled in the King James. Uh, this word in the, in the Greek is only used one other time in the whole Bible, uh, where James says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deluding yourselves or deceiving yourselves. That was me. I, I heard all about Jesus. I would have told you growing up, uh, Jesus is God. But I didn't walk in him. I didn't have faith in him to the degree that I could declare with authority that Jesus is my God. Because I hadn't been at, at that point filled and circumcised and buried and raised. My heart wasn't his. And I didn't have any of those things. I was deceived. And so if you've been made new by God, you can override all those plausible arguments and doubts that would come your way. Things that haven't really maybe surfaced to your mind yet. Things that you're going to hear about tomorrow, you can override with what you know about what God has surely, assuredly done in your life to fill you, to raise you says in verse 5 that we are to have a, he says, I'm, I'm, I'm happy on the, about the firmness of your faith. Well, that speaks against an unfirmness of faith. You can have confidence in Jesus and it's not arrogance because it's a firmness in what he has done for you. It's a firmness in the fact that your sin and my sin has deserved the high price that he paid. So I can have a confidence that, that goes against the unfirmness that the counterfeits try to bring to me. Verse 8, Paul says, do not be taken captive. He talks about empty deceit and human tradition and elemental spirits of the world. Do not be taken captive, it says. Do not be enslaved by these other plausible arguments, these, these human things. They're nothing new. You know, I think that all these other plausible ideas about who Jesus is and what he does in your life, they're often anything but solid intellectual philosophy. I don't stand against philosophy here. I stand against really bad philosophy. And why is it sometimes that so many things that are against firm faith in the mystery of Christ are anything but good intellectual reasoning, good science, Good philosophy, they're, they're, they're shaky, they're deceit. It's because very little of it has to do with intellectual things. A lot of it is just various emotional rages, the spirit of the age, the, the spirit of the world just masquerading itself as intellect. And it's on shaky ground. It says, do not be taken captive anything but firmness in who God is and what he's done in your life and what he's continuing to do in the world, that firmness and the mystery that you grow in at the same time, anything but that, can, it says, leave you enslaved. It's enslaving. Anything in the counterfeit that veils itself as Jesus. So, oh, this is kind of like Jesus. It's enslaving to the degree that Jesus is valuable. If Jesus is infinitely valuable, then, then just a lack of precision about who he is, a little bit of sloppiness can be what Paul calls 
enslaving. Now, how many of y'all have ever heard someone say that Christianity is so exclusive? It's kind of enslaving. It's kind of holds you captive. It's restrictive. I've heard it's regressive. Any of y'all ever heard that? Anyone? I heard that growing up. My, my stepdad was a, a pretty successful liberal lawyer in Oregon. And when I first had my experience with Jesus, he, uh, he kind of came against me a little bit. He, he said, you know, this is really restrictive. You know, it's cool that Jesus has changed your life, but to say that he's the only way, that's just, that's just antiquated, he told me. That's old-fashioned. That's regressive. Uh, he told me I was being hateful. And he, after a few arguments, he told me, uh, you know, this is just an evangelical phase you're going through. And he kind of just wrote it off. Uh, I wish someone would have been a little bit uh, um, uh, more in my life to help me with my own pride because those conversations would have gone a little bit better. I just told him, yeah, well, you're going to hell. Um, <laughs> for some reason, when I told him that, he wasn't like, oh, oh, dang, well, help me not go to hell. Uh, uh, we'll have an evangelism class later tonight. That's not the way to go about it. But years after remedying those things, when he could see that this, these are real riches happening in my life. This is the real deal. He could see that there was something valuable that, that I had that he didn't. About five or six years ago, he was, uh, my stepdad was, was really raised me as much as my, my biological father did. Um, and I was ministering here and he was, he was coming around to church and he was really liking what was happening. He was, he was being able to admit, like, I love this. This is one of the great things out there. But it, it, he still wanted to argue with me a little bit about Jesus being the only way. It felt restrictive to him. That exclusiveness made it, um, him uncomfortable. Uh, that was at the start of, a, I think, the first, second year of our church. He loved our church, but it was just one of many things, many messages, many plausible arguments to him. He, he eventually, uh, that next year, was diagnosed with ALS, which many of you all know Lou Gehrig's disease. It is, I mean, I, I guess there's no really good way to die, but that's the one I would, God help me, I don't want to go that way. It's a very debilitating, demoralizing way to die. And about three months before he died, we had this conversation where he just broke down and he was crying. He said, you know what, for so long, for so long, I, I didn't want to tell my family. I didn't want to tell my family that Jesus is the only way because I wanted to be inclusive. I wanted to be someone that could, could help people not feel bad about the things that they believed. But if Jesus is the only one who's paid the price to actually functionally include people into the kingdom, then I don't want to turn anyone away from him. And I want to have all of him that I can get. And we prayed, and he received Christ. And I know from what I saw and experienced that there was a freedom that I couldn't describe in him, even as he was dying, which he did about three months later. So Paul says, don't let, don't let anyone take you captive by hollow philosophy that doesn't depend on Christ. You know why that's true and why... Why any other plausible argument about who Jesus is and what he can do in your life, it can leave you shipwrecked and deluded and enslaved because Jesus is the only portal of freedom. Amen. He is the liberator. 
He is the one that you come to him. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Anyone else who masquerades themselves as God or or as a portal for for liberation hasn't paid the price that he paid to be able to functionally include. He is exclusively the only one who can do that. He set me free from myself and from all the plausible arguments of my flesh and my mind. And he's still liberating me in the mystery of knowing him more and making him known. And today, if you're here, I want to encourage you, as you weigh out all the arguments about who Jesus is and what he can do in your life, I want to ask you to judge those thoughts and ideas. Do they lead you to the person who is real, who is, who is very present, this person that, that changed Paul's life from being an enemy of God to someone who was willing to have his head chopped off for him and knew that that was the freedom and he said, I struggle for this, that you would know and that your faith would be based in who this person really is and that you would grow in the mystery of this treasure. My encouragement to you, whatever you struggle with, what, maybe whatever weighed you down in here, I want you to, maybe today, I want you to write on the right side of a paper. Make your own little exercise when you go home. What are the things that I'm struggling with? Where I'm going to work? Uh, uh, who I'm going to marry? Put the biggest things that you might think are big ones, right? And I want, you to, I, want to ask, I want you to ask the Holy Spirit. Say, Holy Spirit, help me. Help me to know what do I know about God and who Jesus is that can relate to this big question. And I guarantee you the Holy Spirit will flood you way beyond what I can give you. Jesus said the Holy Spirit will lead you into all truth. So I'm daring you to do this. Write down on the right side all the plausible arguments, the things in your life that would, would, would destroy you or, or make you uh, damaged in, in your thinking or, or the, the things that might hurt you or the things that you're trying to do in your family, write them down. And on the left side, ask the Holy Spirit to remind you about the word of God, which is firm and it's sure and it helps you to grow in a mystery. I'm challenging you to do that. And watch God put open shame on your accuser. Watch God put open shame on the things that would try to dilute you and delude you. Verse 13, I'm going to read on these few verses. It says, You who were once dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, all our sin. Have you trespassed like I did? It wasn't just a few things. It wasn't just, oh, you know, youthful lust. I trespassed and I sinned against him and his creation. And it says here, past tense. God made me alive. Having forgiven us, past tense, all our trespasses. What can you do to remedy all your trespasses? Nothing. But Jesus is the one who can forgive all your trespasses. Verse 14. He raises you to the new life by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. My question to you, has your guilt been nailed to the cross? Have you been made new in God? Have you been free? Have you seen the liberator 
actually liberate you, give you new life, so that the rest of your life, regardless of what you do as an occupation, regardless of who you marry, regardless of those lesser questions, you are driven by the liberator, and your guilt is nailed to the cross. Has that happened in your life? I'm telling you right now, even as you're sitting and I'm talking up here on this platform, you can pray to God and say, God, here I am, make me new. Nail my guilt to your cross. I give you my life, my shame. Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. God will bring shame to your shame if you let him. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for the power to see new life. That we can, with finality, have an assurance and a firmness in what you've done. Lord, I pray that you would empower us to, to... Take every thought captive instead of being uh, held captive by lesser thoughts. That our our new spirit mind that you give us, the, the, the mind that you give us in your spirit, that we would be able and empowered to judge lesser things, accusations from the enemy, according to our faith in you. Help us, God. Lord, I pray that out of this service would come dreams, uh, 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 of of restoration of callings, call, be, people being called out by you to do strange and wonderful and unique things because they've seen you, Jesus, the liberator of souls, the rescuer of, of, of people. Help us, God, to think upon you and to be freed in you, to know you and to make you known. Amen.